Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. If you're enjoying this podcast and would love to hear uh, maybe one of your favorite writers or a story coach or someone in the writing field that you think would make a great episode, drop me a line at hank.garner, G-A-R-N-E-R, at dabblewriter.com and tell me who you would like to hear on the podcast. I'll put a link to my email address in the show notes just to uh, cut out any confusion. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to review this podcast in your favorite podcast app. Drop us five stars if you're enjoying it. We'd appreciate it. It helps other people find the show. And we are live here in the StoryCraft Cafe. I'm your host, as always, Hank Garner. Today, super excited to welcome back uh, someone that I look forward to getting to catch up with and and pick his storytelling brain every year about this time. William Kent Kruger joins us again today. He's got a brand new book that drops next month. It's called The River We Remember. And here's this gorgeous cover, as you can see right there. Uh, an amazing book. I, you know, Kent, I, I'm a huge fan of your Cork O'Connor series, have been for years. And I've, you know, loved talking to you about, uh, you know, new releases in that series. But for the last couple of releases, you've you've uh, changed direction a little bit. Well, not changed direction, but you've you're you're telling other stories besides cork stories. And uh, we talked uh, last year. We, we had this. Uh, you had this this great new. Um, uh, release that you did with audible first if i remember right uh and now we're back with the river we remember which uh takes place in 1958 uh in your beloved minnesota that you that you love to tell stories in uh this book absolutely captivated my imagination you know you know that you're in for a treat when you get the book in the mail and you sit in your favorite reading chair and you know i've got this lamp that's you know it's it's just like i like it and and you open the book and then you look up and it's been three hours and and you just you don't know where you've been but you've been to minnesota in 1958 and that's all that matters um I absolutely love the book. Welcome back to the show. It's always good to, to uh, talk with you, Hank, and uh, especially when you say such nice things about my work. <laughs> well, you know that's that's part of my charm to 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 woo you with with compliments, and you know. Um, before we get into specifically talking about this book, um, because the Cork O'Connor series is such a vast, big series, um, what has uh, kind of drawn your attention uh, lately to looking at other parts of time, other parts of the world, and, and kind of just expanding your your creativity outside that series? 
So you're you're wondering why I write standalones? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Cork O'Connor series has been my bread and butter for uh, more than a quarter of a century now, Hank. Wow. I love Cork. I love Tamarack County. I love all of the people that uh, that populate the, the novels. Uh, but there are other stories I want to write. You know, when you when you write a, a popular long running series, it, you're constrained a bit. Um, readers expect a particular kind of story from sure. you. So um, I like that because I don't have to recreate the wheel every time I sit down to write a Cork O'Connor novel, but I want to do other things. I have other stories to tell. And in some ways they're larger stories. Uh, so the standalones have given me that opportunity. Ordinary Grace was the first one that really, uh, I stepped away from um, the genre in a, in a big way and, Man, did it, did it find an audience? <laughs> when I saw how popular that book was, I thought I'll do another one. And then I came up with uh, this Tenderland and now the river uh, we remember. But uh, as I say, they allow me to talk uh, more deeply about issues and themes that are important to me than very often a Cork O'Connor story will. Do you find that... Um the the established world and the established characters of Cork, um, does that have natural restraints on the kinds of stories that you can tell? Um, I, I guess be, because you, you can introduce all sorts of outside influences to those existing characters, but there's there's sort of a, a an, an established world and established aesthetic there that it, kind of what what are the restraints um, when when writing an existing character? Well, you kind of nailed the things there, Hank. It really, it involves readers' expectations. Uh, when I write a Cork O'Connor novel, I know exactly what readers are going to expect from me. Cork has to be there. The, his family has to be a part of the story. Henry Malou's got to be at the heart of things. It's got to be, uh, the, you know, the Great North Woods has to play a central role. Um, the Ojibwe culture has to be incorporated into the story that I write. So, you know, I know the confines um, and, and for me, always the challenge is to write the story I want to write within those confines. And so far, I haven't had a, any problem doing that. But there are things outside those confines that I also want to explore. Or there are issues that I touch on in the Cork O'Connor series that I want to explore more deeply. And so the, the uh, length, breadth, width of a standalone allows me to do that. Yeah. Um, you have uh, in your last couple of books, um, I'm trying to think uh, about the others that, that standalones, you have gone back in time uh, and written historical stories. What what uh, what does it free you up to do by getting out of our current time away from current technology? You know, I, I can think just off the top of my head, several things that 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 would afford you. Um, but, you know, what, when you start thinking outside of right now, what what doors does that open up? Well, you, you hit on the big one. I don't have to worry about technology. You know, when I write a Cork O'Connor, these stories, I have to think about, okay, what really are the technologies involved in investigations these days? And yeah. it's hard to keep up with those. The, the advances just keep coming. 
Um, so if I go back in time, you know, the parameters are already set. I don't have to worry about uh, not being aware of new things, but I do have to worry about being aware of old things. So I do a great deal of research when I set my novels in the past to make sure that all the historical, um, you know, mileposts, signposts uh, are are in place and correct. Um but one of the reasons I like to go back in time is uh, particularly with Ordinary Grace or now with uh, The River We Remember is I'm recalling times that I grew up in, you know, so it's uh, a kind of a nostalgic indulgence for me. Um, but for a book like This Tenderland, which takes place in 1932 before I was born, um, it allows me to go back and explore that particular time. And in a way, draw comparisons with current day. The issues in uh, in this tender land are still with us today. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. But there's also a comfort in visiting the past. Um, at least I find it so as a, as the storyteller. And the response to readers, uh, many of whom ha have lived through the same times that I've lived through, or with uh, this tender land, either are still around and they went through those or they know the stories their parents or their grandparents told them uh, about the depression era times. So I just have a lot of fun with, with those. Nostalgia can be very strong and there's uh, especially if it's a time that you remember or especially times that you vaguely remember, um, you know, the, the nostalgia of, of bringing these things back to your remembrance can can really be um, uh, overwhelming almost. But the the challenge to that is to visit nostalgia honestly. And and that's one thing that, that I love what you're doing with the river. We remember is there's there's such such an idyllic setting, such idyllic people Um Yet you look honestly at, um, you know, some of our struggles and our failings and, you know, the 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 darker aspects to our, you know, better human nature, um, if you will. Then and those are things that you have never shied away from. Um, but when you're thinking back to a time and, you know, really trying to tap into that nostalgia, what do you do? Um so that you as the writer can look honestly at a time so that you can report honestly on that time. Um, well, you know, uh, I, I lived through 1958. I was eight years old, actually, in 1958. It, and that was long before you <laughs> were probably uh, uh, even a, a twinkle in God's eye, Hank. Uh, but I remember it well. Uh, or enough to elicit this wonderfully nostalgic response. Sure. But you can't rely on just memory. You can't rely on nostalgia uh, to create an accurate story. So I do, a, uh, you know, for the river we remember, I did a great deal of research uh, to make sure that all my historical references were correct and any of the cultural references I made were correct. The songs, the movies, the books, whatever would have actually been available at that point in time. Um, and, and as you point out, I create what is in some ways an idyllic small town, the town of Jewel in southern Minnesota, a very Midwestern town. I grew up in the Midwest, and so I'm, I'm able to invest my love of the Midwest when I create a setting like this. 
But uh, the 50s was really uh, not as idyllic as we might have imagined it or remember it. Uh, We were post-World War II and Korea. We'd come out of two major wars that uh, took a lot of young men away, uh, never to come back, uh, that left a lot of families bereft, left a lot of wounding in this nation um, that we tend to overlook. Um, It was also a time when, you know, we were still struggling with the prejudices that we struggle with today, the ethnic prejudices. Um, And and we tend to forget those. We think of them as the gold, you know, Kennedy came in just after this and it was the it was the time of Camelot. Well, that's a nice image. It's a nice myth. But the reality is, is a great deal different. And so I use the town of Jewel, Black Earth County, the people there uh, to show that what we initially see as idyllic when you dig below the surface has all of the problems, all of the turmoil, all of the chaos, all of the questions that are with us today and have been with us forever. Yeah. You know, community can be um, well. It, it is the 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 fabric of society when when people choose to bond together over common, um, you know, things, whether it be family, whether it be uh, religion, you know, whatever it is that 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 binds a group of people together. That can be a, a powerfully positive thing. And it, it can also be exclusionary. Uh, you know, there's. You can look at things with with two eyes and and see the good, which then uh, a lot of times invariably is is bad to, you know, to someone on the outside. Um, When you start thinking about these uh, these things that are so intrinsically complicated, um, how do you. how do you, you you're, you're so great at at characters that are empathetic and likable, yet very human and very flawed. Um, how do you create a flawed character that's not just hated by the reader? You, you know, it's such a precarious position um, that writers are in to come up with someone that is believable. And and we almost like characters sometimes because of their flaws, because they're not Superman. They're not just perfect. They, they're flawed. Um, we, we talk a little bit about walking that tightrope between someone that is flawed and does things that that bristles against our nature but makes us want to root for them. Maybe it's because we want them to be better or we see the potential in them. You know, when I, uh, when I used to teach writing, uh, one of the things that I would say to my class is, is that uh, a good story isn't about what happens. A good story is about who it happens to. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first order of business really is to offer readers characters that they can embrace as real human beings and real human beings are flawed you know we have heroes but the the heroes are a little always a little on the tarnished side you know yeah Um, and so when i even when i'm creating somebody who does nothing but sow chaos in the story i try to give the reader a sense of, of why that person behaves the way he or she does i don't believe anybody's born bad Uh, our experiences, our lives shape us. And so I always try to give the reader an idea of what it was in that life that shaped that character to do these terrible things. Um, And, you know, we, we, I think 
the characters, when you're talking about, for example, the, one of the central characters in The River We Remember, Sheriff Brody Dern, uh, you've got a guy who really is always trying to do the right thing. He's never you know, certain that it necessarily is the right thing, but that's what he's setting out to do. And he struggles against all the demons of his past that, um, that, that, you know, come to visit him at night and keep him awake. But he really is, he's a good man, a very flawed character. And I think he's kind of representative of all of us. I think all of us, you know, we have that moral compass and we're doing our best to follow it. And sometimes we, we're not there, uh, but we always want to be there. And so it, I think that's an easy character to love. Yeah. When you're uh, first imagining a story like this, um, what comes first? Do, do you start thinking about the plot that, that you're going to unravel with these characters? Or is there a character that comes first or is it a is it a time period and, and you want to paint a pastiche of this time period and then you know what where does where does that kernel of the story come from you know this story actually came out of ordinary grace um that standalone that broke me out to a much larger audience one of the issues that i touched on in um ordinary grace was the uh were the men who were like my father uh you know um if you remember Ordinary Grace, mm-hmm. the, the father in the family, Nathan Drum, came back from World War II, a very changed man. Sure. And he was very like my father. Um, my father, at 18 years of age, graduated from high school, joined the service and marched off to uh, fight in Europe. You know, he was yeah. just a kid. And yeah. he came back several years later, a man deeply wounded uh, in body and in spirit by what he'd experienced there. I realized years later that my father was suffering from PTSD, but you know, they didn't call it that back then. They called it bell shock or battle fatigue. Right. I touched on that issue in, uh, ordinary grace, but I wanted to explore it more. I knew I wanted to explore it more deeply uh, because my father was so like the fathers of my friends, um, the men who had come back changed by deeply changed by the, the horrors that they had witnessed and the horrors that they'd been a part of. And so I wanted to explore that more. And that was really the kernel for, um, the river we remember. I knew I needed to set it in the fifties because that was the time when all of these things still would have been um, in front of people working with, with the issues. Um, It was also a time that I had a sense of since I lived through it. Um, And it was out of that desire to explore more deeply how all of these, how the people came back from that great wounding managed to heal those that did. When you're um, in the 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 very beginning stages of a story like this, do you imagine um, the the entire little town? How do you, how do you cast the the story with the the characters that that are needed to uh, you know to carry the conflict and uh, and do you have an idea of what this town looks like in the beginning, or do you just start writing and let the characters come in as they're needed? No, I had a town, a specific town in mind. 
uh, town in southern Minnesota. Uh, I'm not going to mention the town because people will go, hmm, that's not that town. <laughs> no, I, I took that town. I used it. I, I shaped it to, to meet the needs of the story. But I had a specific town in mind. Uh, and the reason I chose it was it, it was very like the small towns where I'd spent my adolescence in the Midwest and uh, with a river that ran through it. Um, so it, it spoke to me. And with that setting in mind, um, I began to, I wanted to create a mystery. Um, so l let me backtrack a little bit here. Okay. Yeah. There's, there is history to this, uh, to this story. Um, I set out to write it right after I finished Ordinary Grace. I had signed a contract with my publisher for this book and <laughs> was paid a pretty penny for the manuscript. And I spent two years working on it. Um, this manuscript was actually contractually due to my publisher six years ago. But when I finished that manuscript after two years, it wasn't the story that I'd imagined it would be. I honestly didn't have any idea how to make it that story. And, and frankly, my heart wasn't in it. So I told my publisher, I'm not giving you this piece. Um, you're with great fear and trepidation, but they were quite understanding. They said, fine, but you still owe us a, a companion novel to Ordinary Grace. And that's when I set about writing This Tender Land. But uh, five years later, uh, when we're entering the pandemic, um, I wrote I wrote everything I could write. I wrote two books for the Cork O'Connor series. I wrote yeah. uh, novellas, one of which came out as an audiobook original. And then I didn't have any more stories at the moment to tell. <laughs> so I reached up to the shelf where I had put uh, that failed manuscript, pulled it down and began to reread it. And as I as I looked at it this time, it spoke to me in an entirely different way. Um, you know, I have to have a story speak to me in order to do it. Yeah. And that story, this story back then just didn't speak to me. I don't know what happened in all those years, Hank, those five or six years. I don't know if I uh, if the story just needed to gestate more or maybe I needed to grow more as a storyteller. But when I took a look at it, the manuscript again, I thought I know how to write this story now. And so I I wrote it as it stands. Over the next year, I rewrote the whole manuscript to become the river we remember. I I thought I'd heard that story or you know pieces of it that this was a, a book that you had written a while back and wasn't happy with it and came back to it. And I, that was actually the next thing I was going to ask you about. So I'm, I'm glad you went there. Um. But this this is something that a lot of writers can relate to because, um, you know, in the 1500 uh, or so author interviews that I've done, uh, there are the vast majority of people. Um, the, the book that they break out with is almost never the first book that they had written. Um, a few people have published the first thing that they'd written, but they're. A, a huge minority. Um, most people have trunk novels or shelf novels or desk drawer novels, whatever we want to call them, you know, things that we've written, they don't work. You put them away and you start on something else. And then for whatever reason, maybe you get better as a writer. Maybe it's just the correct time for the stuff, whatever it is. Um, you know, that third, fourth novel, whatever, you know, breaks out. Um, but rarely do I see where someone revisits one of these failed novels uh, and and turns it into a publishable work. Um, also, the on the other hand, there are a few people who um, write a book and it doesn't get published and they 
go back to the drawing board and they work on it and they work on it and they work and maybe they spend five years working on this book and then it becomes the the novel that gets them you know published or whatever um and and i've never really had a firm grasp on what makes um what makes a a story not work at one time but then work at another it's you know it's you know writing and publishing is a lot of black magic anyway, but you know, that maybe this is just part of it. Um, but when you revisited this novel five years later, um, could you tell a difference in you as the writer, um, that, that, okay, now I understand what this story is or, or what the story needs, or, you know, maybe this is something that you channeled five years ago and you weren't at the place um, to appreciate the work. I, what, what was it? Can you put your finger on it? Yeah, I didn't have the narrative voice for the story. Um, I tried it uh, kind of as a first person narrative in originally, and it just didn't work. Uh, you know, I struggled, I, you know, kept cramming it in, trying to make it fit, and it just wouldn't work that way. Uh, plus, it was bleeding from uh, a thousand other cuts. Um, and when I put it away, I just thought, okay, mangled this, it'll never, it'll never work. But when I picked it back up, and looked at it, I thought, okay, now I know how to tell this story. Now I know what I want the narrative voice to be. And that really was what gave me uh, the wherewithal uh, to launch back into the rewriting of this story and patch all of those thousand bleeding wounds. <laughs> <laughs> so when you do a rewrite on a, on a fully complete novel, even complete, you know, not working, but you know, you've got a, a beginning, middle and end. Um, how do you approach uh, the rewriting uh, of a of a project of this size? Do, do you literally rewrite the novel from page one to page 400 or, or whatever? Um, is it a massive edit? What, what does a rewrite look like on a project this size? Do you know, when I looked at it, I realized I had a pretty good story in place. It was the characters, the interactions, and again, particularly the narrative voice that was awe. And so it was a great deal of tinkering, uh, going back and making sure that those things that were that, you know, they just didn't ring right. I knew how to create the situation in which that the tone was resonant instead. Uh, and a lot of it was character interaction. A lot of it was character backstory. Uh, and again, a lot of it was just the voice that was going to tell the story, this comforting um, sort of omniscient voice that I decided to use. Uh, you know, it was, it was not, I didn't have to go back to square one. Thank your Lord. Yeah. Uh, it, but I, I, I find my heart was in it. This time, mm -hmm. I, I could feel like I cared about this story again. And that's um, really the main thing, isn't oh, it? Absolutely. I, I hope I never put a book out there that I haven't invested my heart in fully. Yeah. Um, you are uh, embarking on a lot of publicity for this book. You've got a, a, a big book tour and you're going all over the place talking about it. Um, are you ever um, surprised when you meet readers face to face and they tell you um, their um, interactions with your work and, and how it affects them and, you know, the uh, 
you know, what they take from a story that are, are you ever surprised? And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's weird to, to hear other people talk about the thing that you create. Do you know, after I've been doing this for, uh, more than 25 years now, Hank, so I'm less surprised than I am just filled with gratitude that somehow my work, uh, finds a connection with, with people, particularly with their hearts. People really embrace the work in a personal way. And, uh, I just so appreciate that. I, I think I will never grow tired of hearing people tell me how much my work means to them. Yeah. And that really is a hallmark of, of your work is that people take these stories to heart. They, they really um, connect with readers in a deep way. Um, when, when you had that difficult conversation with your publisher, I'm sure that, you know, the, the river we remember the way you had written it was just not working. Did, did they understand you and your readers uh, enough to, to understand, well, if this book is not connecting on that level, then it doesn't need to go out. Yeah, you know, I could have published it, I'm sure, because, hey, I'm William Kent Kruger. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I was disappointed in the in the piece. And uh, and I knew if I was disappointed, it was going to disappoint readers. You know, and if I'm a publisher, why would I want to put a book out there that's going to tarnish my the sterling reputation right. of William Kent Kruger and the publishing house? It just, you know, it made good business sense. Plus, it just... For me, it demonstrated their belief in me, um, and I actually heard uh, um, one of the one of the execs at Itri Books uh, talk about how how they appreciated that that I was willing to take this risk to do something which followed this can you know this tender land came instead so that I could do something like this tender land instead of simply publishing the manuscript I had finished. But didn't yeah. and and this tender land was was no slouch of a book. I mean that you know it, it's almost like you had to get that that one thing out of your system so that you could then <laughs> clear the slate and and move on. It's you know, thank you. Just you got to write the book that speaks to your heart. And this right. tender land was the one that, that was that was the story I really wanted to write. And I didn't see that until after I put aside my first uh, shot at uh, the river we remember. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer and I, and I tell young writers this, don't write what you think is going to be popular. Or don't write what you think is going to be hot. Don't write what, you know, publisher tells you you ought to write or your agent tells you you ought to write, write what your heart tells you you should be writing. And, and we are so grateful that you did the, the river we remember will be out in just a few weeks. We're going to put links in the show notes where folks can pre-order it or go to your local bookstore, tell them that you want to get this book on pre-order and, uh, have them let you know when it's in stock. Um, Kent, what, what are you working on now? And I know you've got a lot of book publicity coming up, but there's gotta be a story that's, that's bubbling up right now. Well, I'm at work on the next Cork O'Connor story. It'll be out, uh, God willing, in the fall of 2024. It's titled Spirit Crossing. I know a lot of people will be excited to see a return to to Cork. Um, the River We Remember, it is out soon. Go uh, pre-order it today. Let your local bookstore know that, that you want it. Uh, Kent, 
it, always a pleasure to catch up. Um, tell folks where they can find you online if they want to uh, dig into all of your back catalog and follow along <laughs> for new, exciting news. Sure. Like every author, I have a website, www.williamkentkruger.com. Excellent. We'll link that up to make it easier for folks to find you. Um, Kent, thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Hank. You take care. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.